Church family, our scripture reading for our sermon today comes from 2 Samuel chapter 18. We're going to start with verse 1. It says, And David numbered the people who were with him, and set captains of thousands and captains over hundreds over them. Then David sent out one-third of the people under the hand of Joab, one-third under the hand of Abishai, son of Zeruiah, Joab's brother, and one-third under the hand of Ittai, the Gittite. And the king said to the people, I will, I will also will surely go out with you myself. But the people answered, You shall not go out, for if we flee away, then they will not care about us. Nor if half of us die, will they care about us. But you are worth 10,000 of us now, for you are now more help to us in the city. And the king said to them, Whatever seems best to you, I will do. So the king stood beside the gate, and all the people went out by hundreds and by thousands. Now the king had commanded Joab, Abishai, and Edai, saying, Deal gently with, with, for my sake with the young man, Absalom. And all the people heard when the king gave the, uh, all the captain's orders concerning Absalom. So the people went out into the field of battle against Israel, and the battle was in the woods of Ephraim. The people of Israel were overthrown there before the servants of David, and a great slaughter of 20,000 took place there that day. For the battle there was scattered over the face of the whole countryside, and the woods devoured more people that day than the sword devoured. Then Absalom met the servants of David. Absalom rode on a mule. The mule went under the thick boughs of a great terebinth tree, and his head caught in the terebinth, so that he was left hanging between heaven and earth. And the mule uh, which was under him went on. Now a certain man saw it, and told Joab, and said, I just saw Absalom hanging from a terebinth tree. So Joab said to the man who told him, You just saw him? And why did you not strike him there to the ground? I would have given you ten shekels of silver and a belt. But the man said to Joab, Though I were to receive a thousand shekels of silver in my hand, I would not raise my hand against the king's son. For in our hearing the king commanded you and Abishai and Ittai, saying, Beware lest anyone touch the young man Absalom. Otherwise I would have dealt falsely against my own life. For there is nothing hidden from the king, and you yourself would have set yourself against me. And Joab said, I cannot linger with you. And he took three spears in his hand and thrust them through, Jab, through Absalom's heart, while he was still alive in the midst of the terebinth tree. And ten young men who bore Joab's armor surrounded Absalom and struck and killed him. So Joab blew the trumpet, and the people returned from pursuing Israel, for Joab held back the people. And they took Absalom and cast him into a large pit in the woods, and laid a very large heap of stones over him. Then all Israel fled, everyone to his tent. Now Absalom in his lifetime had taken up and set a pillar for himself, which is in the king's valley. For he said, I have no son to keep my name in remembrance. He called the pillar after his own name. And to this day, it is called Absalom's monument. First Baptist Church of Grey Gables, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures Let's go to Lord and thank him for his word. Gracious Father, will you please help your people to hear and to understand? Would you press the word of Christ deeply upon our hearts in such a way that it renews our minds and conforms us more and more into his image? Father, we thank you for the life, death, burial, and resurrection 
of your son Jesus. We thank you for his ascension to your right hand where even now he intercedes on our behalf. We thank you for the pouring out of your Holy Spirit upon your people, sealing us for that final day of redemption when Christ will return to make all things new. Father, be with us now, we ask in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. All right, so two chapters. That's a lot of ground to cover. But we can do it. Um, Hopefully we'll see how they kind of hang together here as well. We're going to begin just with a quick review for those who maybe haven't been with us or have missed the last couple of weeks and make sure we're on the same page. We have been in 2 Samuel for a long time, right? Uh, The book of Samuel itself records the beginning of the monarchy, first through King Saul and then eventually under the Lord's anointed, the man of his own choosing, King David. The kingdom has been firmly established by the Lord in the hand of David. He was reigning over Israel. And then in 2 Samuel 11, David sinned against the Lord, taking Bathsheba, Uriah's wife, and conspiring then to kill Bathsheba's husband, Uriah. So the Lord judges him in 2 Samuel chapter 12. And and since then, we've seen really the degrading of David and his kingdom in the following chapters. Uh, Here we find David on the east of the Jordan. He's been exiled from Jerusalem, the promised land. He has had to flee because his son Absalom has conspired against him. Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel to follow after him in a rebellion against his father, taking Jerusalem and taking the promised land from him. We saw two weeks ago that in chapter 16, there are two ways that are presented. David's descent into humility and exile contrasted with Absalom's ascent, the picture of his pride and even violence. We saw that those two ways lead to very, two very different and distinct ends. We see the conclusion of those ends here this morning in chapter 18. So let's take up the passage that we just read and see a broader lesson on the wages of sin. In fact, I think the first section we just read really teaches us that very thing, that the wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is death. I know that's a New Testament verse, but it's an Old Testament, a whole Testament concept. The wages of sin is death. That's truly illustrated here very clearly in chapter 18. Let's go ahead and walk through the passage. David sends out his army under the command of Joab, uh, Abishai, and Ittai the Hittite, uh, uh, Philistine. David himself is persuaded to stay back. They tell David David, but you are worth 10,000 of us now, for you are now more help to us in the city. I really kind of wondered what the author intended for us to think about those words, right? And, and more importantly, David's acceptance of those words. Is this simply a testimony to the reality that David is the Lord's anointed? If so, then it likely serves as, as kind of a foil for Israel's rejection of David and Uh, of the Lord's anointed and their anointing of Absalom, who is not the Lord's anointed? Or is it possibly maybe a subtle little indictment against David, whose heart has indeed shown signs of being lifted above his brothers? Does he also believe that he's worth more than 10,000 of his servants? I'll leave that to your own mind to think. Either way, David's men go. David stays. David's men just rout Israel and Absalom, their anointed king. 
The author tells us that indeed 20,000 men perish in the battle. And remember what this is. Remember that all of this is the outworking of David's own sin and Absalom's rebellion. See, we read in verse 8 that the, the battle spread over the face of the country and that the forest devoured more people that day than the sword. That's reminiscent of a battle that's described for us in Joshua chapter 10 where, where Israel fights and Joshua's at their head and they, they fight the battle of the five kings of the Amorites. And, and there the Lord does this, quoting, he says in Joshua 10, he says, He cast down large hailstones from heaven on them as far as Azekah and they died. And there were more who died from hailstones than the children of Israel killed with the sword. See, what's explicit in Joshua chapter 10 is likely implied here in 2 Samuel 18. That is, stop me if you've heard this before, the battle belongs to the Lord. Or as it says in Deuteronomy chapter 7 verse 21, You shall not be terrified of them, for the Lord your God, the great and awesome God, is among you. See, in our passage, we're reminded that the Lord is in their midst and he's in the midst of David and his men and he's not midst Israel. He's on David's side here. And so the following scene that takes place is both tragic and a little bit ironic. It's ironic because remember what the symbol of Absalom's great pride and glory was. His head flowing with locks of hair that becomes the very instrument of his demise. His head gets caught in the branches of a tree. His royal mount just leaves him, just like his kingdom does. And notice, without any force, right? Don't miss this. A non-animate tree, standing tall and strong, yes, but not moving an inch is all it takes to knock Absalom off his high mule. One of David's men there reports this ironic and tragic scene to Joab who immediately interrogates the man about why have you not killed Absalom on the spot? Joab claims he would have given the young man 10 pieces of silver, which is no small amount, but the young man heard the words of the king. He dares not lift his hand up against the son of David, even if Joab was to place 100 years wages in his hand. But Joab has no scruples whatsoever. He understands that Absalom's death ends the war. It saves their lives. Joab understands that inevitably either Absalom or David dies. And so Joab chooses Absalom. Joab actually seems to be applying Ahithophel's counsel. You remember Ahithophel? In the end, it's better that one man die than many. And so Absalom's death ends the death of many more. Joab plunges three spears into the heart of Absalom. Then ten armor bearers come up and finish the job. Which is interesting considering the the last time we talked about this in the previous chapter, Absalom has gone from the rooftop with ten of his father's concubines to death by ten of Joab's armor bearers. How easy and quickly have the mighty fallen. Joab blows his trumpet. He he calls his troops back and restrains them from causing further bloodshed. Absalom is taken down from the tree. He's thrown into the pit. And then the record closes with the mention of Absalom's monument. And this is really all we need to know about Absalom. He set up a pillar in the king's valley and called the pillar after his own name. It was called Absalom's monument or Absalom's hand or power. 
And Absalom's hand or power were, was around at the time of the writing of this record. And, and here we have another illustration that the wages of sin is death. Absalom is, is the proud and violent seed of the serpent who dies under the curse. And so Absalom is really, therefore, a very important case study for us. Absalom exemplifies human rebellion against God. He's a textbook example of man striving to substitute himself in the place of God. Absalom takes vengeance into his own hands. He takes the kingdom of God, typologically speaking, by force, attempting to displace God's divine prerogative to choose the ruler of his people. When Absalom raises his hand against David, he is knowingly or unknowingly setting himself against the Lord himself. See, Absalom is not simply attempting to take the kingdom from his father. He's attempting to depose the rule of God. David's the Lord anointed, right? And in 1 Samuel, the Bible goes to great lengths to teach us that no one has the right to raise their hand against the Lord's anointed. Even when that man is Saul, let alone David, a man after God's own heart. And so in chapter 18... David may stay behind the city gate, but it's the Lord who goes out into battle. And Absalom finds himself fighting an impossible battle against the king of kings and the Lord of lords who holds him derision. And in the end, this case study ends the way every single case of human rebellion does. In the death of deaths under the curse of God. Absalom joins the kings of Canaan on the tree in the pit under a great heap of rocks and so ends all human rebellion against God. Seems like an appropriate time to remind you of something. And that is this, friends, you are not God. I, I, I put that in your notes because I need you to write that down, right? Because you, you look around right now and you say, I, I know that. Well, then why do you act like it? L look around at our world. And Absalom's everywhere, is he not? Humans attempting to depose the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings to establish their own rule, their own way. So no, you may not see a man on a mule or wielding a sword or at the head of any army perhaps. But you will see professors teaching that God is dead and man reigns supreme in all the universe. You will see politicians that believe that they are the law. You will see men, women, and even children who refuse to honor and thank their creator. The reality is, like Absalom, we've all raised our hand against the Lord's anointed. So I remind you this morning that you are not God and all who continue to depose him and make self king in the end, in the death of Absalom. God has spoken. His word stands. You can rail against it, judge it as mean and unfair, but he is king. You are subject. You're either a loyal, loving subject or a wretched, unfaithful, rebellious son. And friend, there is a day quickly approaching when all the sons and daughters of rebellion will hang from trees just like Absalom. 
Just take a moment and and let that sink into you. I don't know how that might sound in your ears. I have no idea where you stand or what you believe to be true about this world. But I'm here to proclaim to you this morning, there is but one true and living God who is King of kings and Lord of lords. And every single knee will someday bow before him. If you reject that despise him, then you will someday give an account and your end will be the end of Absalom. But there's good news. Even right here in this passage in 2 Samuel 18, in the following verses, verses 19 through 32, here's what we see. They record the good news that is carried to King David. Amahaz, the son of Zadok, He begs to carry the news to Joab. Joab says, no, bro, not you. See, Joab is anticipating that David's going to take the news about his son harsh. So he sends instead a foreigner. He sends the Cushite. But Ahamahaz does everything he can to eventually persuade Joab to let him carry the news also. And even though he starts running... After the Cushite, he actually outruns him to get to David first with the news that the Lord has delivered him from the hand of his enemies. Then the Cushite arrives and confirms this news. Though David asked the son of Zadok about the state of his son, Amahaz sidesteps the question, and he does so wisely. The Cushite instead, in verse 32, says this, May the enemies of my lord the king and all who rise against you to do harm Be like that young man. So David understands his son is dead. Now, before we take up David's response, I want us to consider what we have here in the proclamation of this good news. This good news could be referred to as gospel. It is the declaration of victory on the battlefield carried to King David. Ahamaha's unrelenting desire to carry the good news is precisely because it's good news, right? And the news is more precisely that the Lord saves. The Lord has delivered David and David's people. We read three times here in this passage, verse 19. Let me run now and take the news to the king, how the Lord has avenged him of his enemies. Then when he gets to David, he says, Blessed be the Lord your God who has delivered up the men who has raised their hand against my Lord the King. Then in verse 31 to the Cushite, There is good news, my Lord the King, for the Lord has avenged you this day of all those who rose against you. Let's just stop and apply that for a second, shall we? Yes, we've seen the wages of sin is death, but we also need to see that the Lord delivers his people. The Lord delivers his people. Just a moment ago, we we saw that the the world is full of Absaloms who attempt to depose and displace God's rule in a vain, futile attempt that ends in the curse of death under God's wrath. But remember that Israel is always just a microcosm of humanity, the whole world. Israel had chosen Absalom, but There are Jews and Gentiles, men, women, and children out of Israel, out of even non-Israel, who have chosen David. They've kissed the Lord's anointed, to use the language of Psalm chapter 2. They've accepted his rule. They've honored him in their hearts. And they would rather die with David than live in the promised land without him. 
So the end of chapter 18 reminds us that they chose wisely because the Lord is with David and the Lord's those with those who've honored David. So Absalom illustrated human rebellion against the Lord and we're warned to repent of that rebellion and reject the Absaloms. But this record also depicts God's salvation. Friends, we're encouraged to trust the Lord who delivers his people. He has and will save all who trust and honor the Christ, the son of David, Jesus. And in a moment, we'll see how he is saved. But for now, let me just run ahead of the Cushite and proclaim the good news. God saves sinners. We next see, as we continue on in our passage in chapter 18, verse 33, the following. There's a a solemn reminder here for us that there is only one true and better priest king, and it ain't David. Verse 33 of chapter 18 reminds us of that. There is only one true and better priest king, and it is not David. See, David laments the good news that was brought to him. Look at the last verse of chapter 18. He says, or it says, And the king was deeply moved and went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And as he went, he said thus, O my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, if only I died in your place, O Absalom, my son, my son. This is really a fascinating scene because he continues to mourn the death of his son so much so that shame is actually brought upon all of David's men. In fact, that's what we read in verses 5 and 6 of chapter 19. Joab shows up and starts to rebuke David even. He says this, Then Joab came into the house to the king and said, Today you have disgraced all your servants, who today have saved your life, the lives of your sons and daughters, the lives of your wives, and the lives of your concubines, and that you love your enemies and hate your friends. For you've declared today that you regard neither princes nor servants. For today I perceive that if Absalom had lived and all of us had died today, that it would have pleased you well. On one hand, we get it, right? David's mourning over his son. We understand that. It's it's commendable. But on the other hand, you, you have to really read the indictment and rebuke of Joab That he plainly condemns his actions. And so we have to wrestle with this. Okay, which is it? What's right here? First, let me just say that sin's really messy, isn't it? You ever been in a situation like this? Where it seems as if one thing's the right thing to do. But there's just so much sin involved. That navigating the Lord's will is, is difficult. Well, friends, which is it? Should we be sympathetic that David just lost his son and he's mourning? Or should we stand with Joab and say, you, you hate your friends and love your enemies? Well, David's lament underscores a couple things we need to understand. First, we need to know something very clearly. And I wonder if you picked it up in verse 33. Did you notice how David referred to Absalom in verse 33? His son. My son, my son, my son. That's... That's the first time he's done this since 2 Samuel 13, just prior to Absalom's murder of his other son, Amnon. Since then, he's referred to Absalom as the young man, a very generic term that does not sound affectionate. Even recently, when his military commanders, 
he commanded them to deal gently with Absalom, you'll notice David called him deal gently with the young man, Absalom. So for the first time since Amnon's death at the hand of Absalom, David is referring to Absalom as his son. It took the death of David's son to finally remove the enmity that existed between Absalom and David. And so from that perspective, it's good. But we really have to ask in interpreting this always, what's the author's primary lens? Is this what the author really wants us to see here? And I'm actually going to have to argue that it's not. Because that leads me to the second thing we need to see here. David's lament, in my opinion, I believe it's, it's found in the word of God to be deeply disturbing. I really do. This is communicated in a couple ways. First, one might recall the indifference that David had shown toward the death of his innocent son back in chapter 12. Do you remember that? There was no lament whatsoever. In fact, even his servants were surprised by that. He got up, changed his clothes, ate, and drank. There was no lament from David when his innocent son died in his place. But here, David is beside himself with lament. He uses the term son eight times in the course of two different verses. Second and far more clear and straightforward are the words of Joab that condemns David's lament as an affront to his people. But did you notice what, that, that actually what Joab doesn't say, I think is the most important thing. Who delivered David? Remember what Joab said in verse 5? Look at it with, again with me. He says, today you've disgraced all your servants who today have saved your life. The lives of your sons and daughters, the lives of your wives, and the lives of your concubines. In other words, Joab says, we delivered you, and look at you covering us with shame. But who delivered David? Joab? David's servants? We just heard three times who delivered David. Yahweh did. See, Joab is thinking of himself and the other men who went to go out and fight for David, risking their lives for the king. But we, the readers, know that the forest actually devoured more men that day than the sword. We know that Joab and his armor bearers may have pierced Absalom and struck him down. But it was the tree that defeated Absalom, the inanimate object. I mean, if we're paying attention, we know that, that when we're talking about the friend who loves David, it's the Lord. So therefore, we can, we can read right in that it's possible that the one David is hating in this situation is the real one who delivered him, the Lord. I believe Joab's words, they're, they're a thinly veiled indictment that David prefers his own enemy's son to live that day and for the Lord to die instead. I think Leviticus 10 actually is very instructive for us here. You remember what happens? Leviticus 10 is the story of Nadab and Abihu. It's Aaron's two sons and the record of their death. What do they do? They offer unauthorized fire before the Lord. And like Absalom, they attempt to depose God by establishing their own way of worship. Leviticus chapter 10 verses 2 and 3 tells us, So fire went out from the Lord and devoured them. And they died before the Lord. And Moses said to Aaron, this is what the Lord spoke, saying, By those who come near me, I must be regarded as holy. And before all the people, I must be glorified. And the Bible tells us, so Aaron held his peace. In other words, Aaron did not lament. Now hear me. This is what we call descriptive text and not prescriptive text. 
Right? So, so we, we read nothing into how we mourn the loss of children here. That's, that's not it at all. But the description of this is instructive for us. Aaron is commanded not to lament for his son specifically because the anointing oil of the Lord was upon him. See, Aaron had, be, had been specially chosen to serve as the high priest, to mediate on behalf of the Lord and God's people. His primary calling was to glorify the Lord for whom he served. Wailing and lamenting the death of his rebellious, wicked sons would have honored them above the Lord whom he was specifically called to honor. It would have demonstrated a greater love for his sons than for his Lord whom they offended. And so with that in view, we move back to Samuel and not even back to 2 Samuel. But think about how Samuel actually begins with another high priest who has two wicked sons. Who also mishandled the offering of the Lord. But unlike Aaron, Eli honors his sons above the Lord. So it is consequently that both he, Eli, and his two sons perish in the same day. His house is cut off and David's house is established. So with that background, David's lament here, it's it's not commendable. It's, It's not exemplary. It's disturbing. David loves his wicked son more than he loves his loyal servants. Absalom, according to David, is worth 10,000 of his servants. And that's Joab's point. But the astute reader recognizes that what Joab says about David's servant has to be applied to David's Lord. David is, in fact, honoring his son above his Lord. The Lord graciously provided for David in the wilderness. He delivered him from the hand of all his enemies. And even so, the Lord's anointed. David loves the one who hates him more than the one who loves him. And this is what we've seen over and over again. Also, it's an indictment against Israel, is it not? Don't miss this. Israel loves them a good Saul. Israel loves them a good Absalom. Israel loves those who hate them. Israel loves those who are tyrannical and oppressive. Israel loves the ones who abuse them. Even in 1 Samuel 8, when the Lord says, they're rejecting me, not you, speaking to Samuel. He says, give them a king they're asking for. Only tell them this. Their king is going to hate them. He's going to take their sons and daughters. He'll take your field. He will take, take, take. And yet Israel cries out, we have no king but Caesar. Of course, it's a microcosm of humanity. What is true of Israel when it comes to sin and rebellion is equally true of all human beings. God created all people. He provides for all people, is near to all people so they might know him and honor him as God, not for his benefit that he might take and take, but instead that he might give up himself, that his people might know him and might enjoy him forever. And bringing the focus back down to David, we must remember this scene is all the more tragic because David is the Lord's anointed. This is the latest addition of the conveyor of God's promise to redeem his people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And as we think about the fallen condition of man in our passage, we also need to cringe as we see David conducting himself in this way. And why? It's because we tremble at the threat to the promise. 
David's failure, if we understand the redemptive storyline, is a threat to the entire world. How will the Lord succeed and the promise prevail if his anointed David has greater love for his rebellious son who raised his hand against him and his Lord than he does for his own Lord? This, this sounds way more like Eli all over again. In fact, the whole part of what makes the book of Samuel uh, does is, is he uses the contrast between Eli and David to make it clear to us that salvation depends upon the Lord. And so if both Eli and David love those who hate them and hate those who love them, why in the world does David's house stand while Eli's house falls? In a word, promise. David's house stands because the promise prevails. That's it. It's got nothing to do with David. Everything to do with the promise. Unlike Eli, when David hears the news of his son and his death, he does not die also. Instead, he recognizes Absalom's death will mean David will live. Can we say that? We can. David, in the end, is brought safely home precisely because Absalom dies the cursed death on the tree. David becomes a conduit of blessing and forgiveness here. And that's demonstrated to us in what happens in the rest of chapter 19. Why? Because the Lord has spoken and his promise prevails. So let's take a look at the rest of the chapter. Let's see what happens here. The rest of the chapter in chapter 19, we see the return of the king from exile. David's return is explained starting in verse 8. Israel looks around and says, Absalom, the one we anointed... He's dead. But David, he's still alive. I'll take the live one. They call for David to return home. But what we need to notice in the course of this is the reason for David's return from exile is the same reason from Absalom's death on the tree. The reason is, it was the will of the Lord to bring disaster upon Absalom. So also, David returns not because of the conniving of either Israel nor David... But he returns precisely because it was the will of the Lord to bring David home. Notice that David's return actually mirrors his exit. He encounters three people on his way out. Shammai, Ziba plus Mephibosheth there, and Barzilla. They were all met on the way out to exile. They were all mentioned in David's exit. And now they're mentioned in David's return. And each one of these encounters offers a lesson of what it's like to benefit from the return of the king. It's a little like a, like a prelude. It's an, it's an illustration of what it's going to be like when the real t- king returns, King Jesus. So what happens? Well, first we encounter Shemai. What we know from this encounter is that when the king returns, forgiveness is issued. Shemai will not die this day. The original author did not know all that we know when we read this passage, but the divine author did. And listen, that always impacts the way we interpret texts like this. It must. The Spirit of Christ is the original author. 
He's the one selecting the events that we consider this morning in order to point people to the coming of the Lord Jesus. So, for example, when Ahithophel counseled Absalom that it's better for one man to die than for all the people with David to perish, no one at the time could have fully understood that the high priest of Israel, over a hundred years later, would counsel the leaders of Israel in a similar way in John eleven fifty, When he says, of Jesus, nor do you consider that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people and not that the whole nation should perish. Or when Ahithophel, the betrayer of the Lord's anointed, when he hung himself, the author that recorded that event didn't know the moment a hundred years later when a greater betrayal would depict a similar scene. When Judas, after betraying the Lord's anointed with a kiss, would go hang himself. Or who could have imagined, first reading through this, that the Lord would deliver his people by becoming Absalom for us? But, but to read and to pretend that we don't see the, the mystery concealed in history now revealed in Christ, I would argue, is an affront to the God who knows the end from the beginning. So bringing it all together, what, what we've seen is that the wages of sin is death. But there's good news. God delivers his people. And this morning we proclaim the good news that our God and Savior has indeed delivered us from our sins. This passage actually points to how that takes place, how Jesus did that. Jesus was truly worth 10,000 of us, and that's an understatement. Yet he's the one who went out into battle while we stayed behind in the city. He went out and faced the powers of darkness to take the place of every son and daughter of Absalom who had opposed his righteous reign, that they might become the righteousness of God. The words of John Stott could not be more fitting in helping us understand what we see pictured or illustrated here in this text. He says in, 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 the, in the book that if you have not read, grab a copy. It's called The Cross of Christ, and it's one of the best ten books I've ever read in my life. It is a tremendous help. He says this. He says, The concept of substitution lies at the heart of both sin and salvation. For the essence of sin is man substituting himself from God for God. While the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. Man asserts himself against God and puts himself where only God deserves to be. God sacrifices himself for man and puts himself where only man deserves to be. Man claims prerogatives that belong to God alone. God accepts penalties that belong to man alone. So we ask, how is it that the author of life, the glorious one, the perfect one, the righteous one, could die the death of Absalom, a cursed death? David's return to Jerusalem is because of the grace and mercy of his Lord, who would one day come and die to take David's place. Just like Absalom, Jesus would die under the curse of God for the sins of David and for all of God's people. But we can't end with just the death of Christ, can we? See, unlike Absalom, Jesus didn't stay dead. He rose from the grave. He conquered death and brought the fulfillment of the things foreshadowed in the rest of chapter 19. So because of his resurrection, we will have what is foreshadowed here when our king returns. So when we see the king return, what do we see? The full forgiveness of sins. Shammai is forgiven completely and utterly. The work has been completed, right? The consummation of what is purchased has not. 
What else will we see when the king returns? Well, when the king returns, we see forgiveness issued. I'm just going to encourage you to, to read chapter 19 to see this. But in verses 24, and 20, 24 through 30, we see when the king returns, fellowships restored. I really wish I had time to expound this passage. This is the part where it's a whole sermon that was kind of pushed into the back of this sermon. But just go back and read chapter 19. There, David again, he's not the true and better high priest. Particularly in this passage, he's not judging rightly. Ziba spun a yarn, if you ask me. He told David when David was exiting, he said, listen, Mephibosheth, man, he, uh, he decided to stay behind because he thinks Israel is going to give him back the kingdom of his father. So here, Mephibosheth is approached as David returns from exile. Mephibosheth has not groomed his hair, hasn't touched his hands and feet. He is unkempt. He has obviously been mourning since the king has left. And so David asked him, Mephibosheth, why didn't you come with me originally? Mephibosheth says, I'm lame. I can't walk. So David says, well, here's what we're going to do. Ziba, you just take half of whatever is Mephibosheth's. And don't miss the irony here. Look at Mephibosheth's response in verse 30. Rather, let him take it all. Inasmuch as my Lord the King has come back in peace to his own house. Mephibosheth has what he wants fellowship with the anointed one. He gets to return to the king's table, not just for a good meal, but for communion with his friend. Oh, I wish we had time to picture that, friends, when we will have our fellowship fully and finally restored when the king returns. So we'll take up the last piece. We've got forgiveness issued, fellowship restored. But verses 31 through 40 depict the favor we will know. Chim Ham here, again, read this, receives favor. Favor will be known. We could point that at just say grace will be known, obviously. But that doesn't start with an F and we're Baptist. So, so we celebrate the new creation that we long for. Where forgiveness will be issued, fellowship will be restored, and favor will be known. See, the reality is, we have, we have a tendency to look back at the cross event, to celebrate the resurrection, yes, but never forget, church family, we, we can't just even stop there in celebrating the death and resurrection of Christ. We must always look forward to the new creation. You know why? Because that's what sprang forth out of the grave when Jesus was raised from the dead. This present evil age, someday very soon, will come to an end. And the new creation will be consummated in eternal glory. So this Sunday, as we do every Sunday, we pray, come Lord Jesus. Oh, how we long for all that we know and all that we now hold dear to give way to what our hearts most fully really and truly long for true and abiding fellowship with our king with our savior with our lord the lord jesus christ let's stand together as we close in word of prayer gracious father i thank you for saving sinners lord we we confess corporately that we belong to the line of Absalom. We have raised our hand against you 
and against your anointed. Lord, had you not intervened to save, we would still substitute ourselves in your place. So we simply say thank you, Lord, for your mercy and your grace. I pray that that there are those among us that will hear this and recognize their end unless they cry out. Would you move among us even now and, and cause them to look to your son, to believe on him and be saved? Would you glorify yourself in our midst as we, as we do every Sunday, celebrate the life, death, resurrection, ascension, and quickly approaching return of your son, Jesus Christ? We pray in Jesus' holy name. Amen. So we come to the conclusion of our service and the time of invitation. I pray the invitation is very clear for you. Um, for those who do not repent of their sins and trust in the Lord's deliverance in Jesus Christ, your, your end will be the end of Absalom. I wish I had better news for you, but that's it. But that is, in fact, good news because it means we serve a just God. It means, actually, that heaven won't be like earth. It's going to be way better. <laughs> See, if we didn't have a a God who judged and punished sin, then we would bring all our rebellion into his presence in heaven forevermore. And then what would be the difference? But friends, we have a God who will justly and rightly punish sin because of his holiness. And, And because of that, we deserve and have earned a just punishment for our sins. Yet, because of his great love, he sent his son Jesus to die the death that we deserve, to die the death of Absalom so that we could be given life and life eternal in his presence, so we could be made clean even though we're not. And if you have not today, by faith, responded to that gospel message with repentance and faith, a turning away from your sinfulness and turning towards Christ as king and, and faith in his finished work on the cross to cover your sins and arrest in his finished work, that it's not about your good works or earning your way to salvation, it's about resting in the finished work of Jesus. If you have not done that, then I pray that today would be the day of salvation for you and for us, friends. Let's never, never forget the longing we have for Lord Jesus to return. Understanding that all that he's gone through to protect his promise and his promising prevail, that the battle belongs to him. These themes we've seen over and over and over again. I know the living in this world can be dreary at times and disheartening. But Lord, we, uh, we, we can't as a church put our hope in anything else but Christ and his work. And that's a great place to put your hope. I don't know if you knew that. So we continue to do that and we help each other alongside as we do. I'm going to encourage you, um, if whatever the Lord's doing in your heart, if you would respond to that, we'll have men down front right here on this row um, that would love to pray for you and minister to you. Uh, and so if you have not today, by faith, given your heart and life to Jesus, I pray that you would. Um, and we will uh, be here for whatever we can do and pray for you down front.